This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Good evening and welcome to my little audio imaginarium. We peddle conspiracies and the paranormal and UFOs on this broadcast. So if you think the Warren Report is a wonderful piece of fiction, if you believe that scratching noises under your bed or behind the wall is not just a mouse... And the alien issue is less about illegals and more about extraterrestrials, then you've come to the right place. My name is Richard Serrett, and this is The Conspiracy Show. I mentioned conspiracies, and I'm reminded of Jim Mars and his book, Rule by Secrecy, uh, in which he wrote, conspiracies are, conspiracies are not just theories. Oftentimes, they are crimes. That bears repeating. Uh, but too often, it seems, the, the mainstream media look at conspiracy as some sort of sociological phenomena, something to be uh, studied, put under a microscope. Scores of books and articles and even scholarly papers have been written trying to understand what makes people who believe in conspiracies tick. Again, the subtext being that everyone who doesn't believe in the official version of any given news event is suffering from some kind of pathology. Books and articles, scores of books and articles on why conspiracies are dangerous, even toxic. There was a a member of President Barack Obama's administration who was charged with the task of using social media to persuade people to stop believing in conspiracies. In just a few moments, a political scientist and an associate professor with what I think is a refreshingly honest, objective, and fair treatment of conspiracy. Joseph Yusinski is standing by to discuss why why conspiracies are so popular in North American culture, how they're treated in the mainstream media, the important role conspiracy theory plays in society. He'll also discuss the history of conspiracy theories, particularly in the United States, And uh, we'll hear about the results of an experiment he conducted with his students involving conspiracy theories. Uh, But once again tonight, as I've done for the last two weeks, I wanted to introduce you to another one of the featured speakers 
at my upcoming Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit, which is coming to Oshawa November the 16th. If you've uh, ever felt there was something odd about the world we live in, Jim Elvidge provides a new provocative view of that true nature of reality and provides evidence suggesting we're living in a digital simulation. In other words, our reality is programmed along the lines of the movie The Matrix. Jim holds a master's degree in electrical engineering from Cornell University. He's applied his training in the high-tech world as a leader in technology and enterprise management, including many years in executive roles for various companies and entrepreneurial ventures, and he is the author of The Universe Solved. Jim, welcome. How are you? I'm great. Thank you very much, Richard. It's great to be on the show again. And uh, looking very much uh, forward to, uh, to, to speaking with you once again, November the 16th at the Region Theatre in Oshawa, where, where you'll be uh, presenting. Just uh, w- obviously without uh, telling, uh, telling us everything that's in your presentation, give people uh, who maybe uh, haven't heard you before, give us an overview of what you'll be talking about. Sure. Um, and, you know, the uh, name of the conference, Follow the Truth, is just couldn't be more perfect for the kind of message and the kind of research that I'm doing. Um, one of the things that has happened over the years is whenever there's a radical idea in science, or in sociology, or many, many different fields, it takes a long time for that idea to take hold. You could look at something like, uh, you know, cave art was originally thought to be very recent, and then he found out that it was 30,000 years old, um, kind of turned uh, anthropology on its, on its head. Uh, Ohm's law, a very simple law relating voltage, current, and resistance, was considered heretical when it came out. And it took about 30 years for these kinds of um, ideas to gain acceptance. There's an initial negative reaction to those ideas. Another one was cold fusion. Cold fusion now is called uh, low-energy nuclear reactions. It's another example of something that took about 30 years for it to kind of hit the mainstream. Well, I say all of that because um, following the truth is really about looking at the evidence in scientific experiments, well-done scientific experiments, and making determinations of what that tells us about reality. And unfortunately, many scientists are refusing to acknowledge that, you know, there's some really interesting and unusual and uh, provocative results from some of these experiments to tell us our reality is digital and also tell us that our reality is based on consciousness and not based on uh, material, uh, based on matter and energy, as has normally been thought. So this idea is not my idea. This is I'm one of the people who have kind of sifted through a lot of the experiments and a lot of the information and you know come to my own conclusions about it. And so my presentation is basically about explaining why this view of reality, this view of the world that we live in, is really the only one that can answer all the questions that we have, solve all the anomalies that we have from the observer effect, the finely tuned universe, paranormal things, mysteries of life, life after death, nature versus nurture, UFOs, all those things fall neatly into place when you, you know, look at the evidence and take it to its conclusion. So my presentation is about just that. It's just about showing, you know, where these ideas come from, why they solve all of these anomalies, these scientific and, and uh, paranormal anomalies, and how it, how it all comes about. You know, what, what really is it? Now, there we're getting into a more speculative area, you know, what our world is like 
how it came about. Um, and there are some very good theories on this, but, you know, admittedly, that's a bit speculative, but that's an interesting uh, area to, to discuss as well. Jim, just just take a couple of moments. Uh, for those, uh, let's call them the uninitiated, or again, those who haven't heard you, you speak on this program or other programs or, or haven't read The Universe Solved, uh, what do you mean uh, by we, are li- we may be living in a digital simulation? In other words, our reality may be a digital simulation. Right. And, and it's, a real, it's a great question, and it's really important to... Um, to note that it doesn't necessarily mean that there's some alien hacker somewhere that we're under the control of. The movie The Matrix was, I think, you know, a very interesting and provocative um, idea about this, but the the whole premise of it, you know, robots kind of running the, the simulation and, and humans being batteries, and that, that was a little far-fetched. I think it's much more likely that we live in a system which is digital, um, and what that what that means is that when you dive as far deep as you can into matter, ultimately what you're going to find out is that there's no real stuff there. And and this has been happening over the past century or century century or two, that we're realizing that as we break apart atoms, as we break apart subatomic particles and things like that, we you know we find that um, there there's less and less stuff, more and more space. And ultimately, it's looking like, really, um, everything is just information. If everything's information, all of the forces that we feel, all the experiences that we have are just based on this information, based on data. So the system that we live in probably has created all of this. And uh, my, my friend Tom Campbell has also written a great book called My, uh, my Big Toe, and he explains how this may have all come about, and it's it's, I think, a, a very good uh, explanation for how it came about and, and why we live in, in the, you know, the world that we live in. Uh, you mentioned so, Moore's Law a little a while ago, Jim, Moore's Law, and, and, uh, which sort of tracks the technological uh, advances and, and how it's, you know, just the multiplier effect. And, and, you, and I, you and I have discussed this before on the program, uh, and, and uh, for a, a perfect example – of, of Moore's Law to me and, and speaks to this idea of a digitally a programmed reality or a digital simulation is how, how it's getting harder and harder uh, to differentiate between, uh, let's say, a, a video game and, and uh, John Madden's NFL every year comes out with a new edition. And uh, I, I saw my, uh, my nephews playing it, uh, I think it was a 2012 or 2013 edition a couple of weeks ago. And I had to I had to look two, three times uh, while they were playing to figure out, am I watching a live, actual live game, or is this a digital simulation? It's getting harder to tell the difference. It really is, and and I love that you picked that one because that's the one that I use too, the the Madden series. I've I've done the same thing. I've been doing a double take for a few years, and it's just getting better and better. And All that tells us is that, you know, it, it gives us evidence that we can be fooled, that we could live in a, a simulated world and we would have no idea, you know, that it's under some sort of uh, program control. It's all very possible and it's all very likely, as the philosopher at Oxford University, Nick Bostrom, has posited that, that it, you know, if you follow the logic of living in a simulation, it's most likely that we already are. Um, and, and that's an interesting argument all by itself. But it's just one of 
maybe a dozen bits of evidence or a dozen categories of evidence that I've outlined on my site. Some of them I've included in the book, and I'll certainly go through those at the conference. But taken all together, it's an incredible amount of support for this idea. And you, you, know, you pretty much can't argue with too many of these things, and, then, and taking them all together, it's very difficult to argue with the entire uh, uh, basis of, of um, you know, these ideas. An- another uh, uh, piece of evidence, I'm not sure exactly how it fits in there, but it does, I'm quite sure. Uh, recently, I read where uh, researchers at MIT uh, were able to implant, essentially implant false memories in lab mice. Absolutely, yeah. Now, this has been going on the brain-computer interface world. It has been, it, it's following Moore's Law. So if they can do lab mice now, then, you know, what's the, compl- the ratio of complexity of a human brain to a mouse brain? I don't know. Just pick a number. You know, if it's 1,000, then, you know, a factor of two, uh, you know, raised to 10, perhaps. I, I, you know, I forget my, uh, my powers right now. But, you know, that, that just means Moore's Law being every... Uh, 18 months or so, we just need 10 orders of that to get to the point where we can start doing that with humans. Exactly. Within Jim, our lifetimes. Absolutely. That, it's coming. Those kind of things can be done. Yeah, absolutely. If it's not here already, Jim, really looking forward to uh, to uh, speaking with you and uh, uh, letting people have an opportunity to hear uh, your most remarkable and compelling uh, presentation, November the 16th at the Regent Theatre. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Richard. Have a good night. Thank you. Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit, Sunday, November 16th, all-day conference. For more information, visit followthetruth.tv, or you can order from the box office, 905-721-3399. Use the code word ROSWELL. Receive a 25% discount. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Americans have been conspiracy theorists since the beginning of America, but what do we really know about American conspiracy theories? Why do some burn brightly and endure while others flicker and fade? Are conspiracy theorists, just like everyone else, using a trove of original data? American Conspiracy Theories is the first work to systematically assess over a century of U.S. conspiracy theories. Joseph E. Uzinski and Joseph M. Parent find that much of what we know about conspiracies is wrong. Beneath the surface of successful conspiracy theories lurks a strategic logic. Shifts in political power have predictable effects on Americans' perceptions. Joseph Uzinski received his bachelor's degree from Plymouth State University, his master's from the University of New Hampshire, and his doctorate from the University of Arizona. His research has appeared in many scholarly journals and outlets. His first book, The People's News, Media, Politics, and the Demands of Capitalism, addresses how audiences demand drive news content. His most recent book, American Conspiracy Theories addresses why people do or don't believe in conspiracy theories in America. He's currently Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Miami. Joseph, welcome aboard. How are you? Very good. Uh, thank you so much for having me on tonight. Uh, and thank you for, uh, for joining us, Joseph. I, uh, I mentioned earlier uh, that one of the things that sort of irks me is the way that this whole field of, of conspiracies is covered by um, the mainstream media, not just the mainstream media, but uh, there have been you know, academic report uh, papers and so forth, and I'm sure you've read many of them, that look at 
conspiracy theories from a strictly a sort of a psychological, sociological point of view, rather than examining them on a case-by-case basis, it's like they're trying to figure out what makes these people over here that believe in these things, what makes them tick? What's wrong with them? Do you, do you concur? Is that a fair assessment of the way conspiracy theories have been portrayed in the mainstream uh, media, uh, reporters, academics, and so forth? Yeah, I would concur with that. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, if you look at how conspiracy theories are covered in the mainstream media, uh, which is one of the things we look at in the book, we tracked news on the Internet over the course of a year. So we picked up about 3,000 stories in our sample that looked at um, that were written in the mainstream media that, that looked at conspiracy theories. And what we found was the vast majority of them treated the conspiracy theory very negatively. It was only about 10 to 15 percent that treated the conspiracy theory positively. Um, I guess what you might expect um, would be that you would have more coverage coming down in the middle, but you don't. You you have a mainstream media that's very anti-conspiracy theory. And we find the same thing in, in, in academia, too. Most studies come at the topic by assuming that conspiracy theories are wrong, that there's some part that, that they're a part of misinformation or a myth or a rumor, but they're under the assumption that they're that they're not true and they don't entertain the idea that they could be true. Is is this rooted in a a misunderstanding of the word conspiracy uh, for example you know we know that in the judicial system there are thousands upon thousands of criminal conspiracy charges uh laid every year in the united states and canada we know the corporations uh, uh commit conspiracies they collude they conspire to fix prices or to uh, manipulate labor markets uh why does the mainstream have such a problem with the con- the word conspiracy? Is it that they don't understand what it really means? Well, I, th- I mean, on the one hand, it's not just the mainstream media. I think that people in general a lot of times have a very negative view of the word conspiracy theory. Um, so most people, if you say conspiracy theory, they immediately think kook or outside of the mainstream or that the person's unreasonable or can't be reasoned with, or that the explanation is, you know, prima facie false. Um, Now, that's not absolute across all people. A lot of people, they hear a conspiracy theory and they say, hey, you know, that might be something that I'm interested in. I want to see that, you know, that explanation. So that's why shows like yourself uh, do very well, because you use the conspiracy theory term, and there are people who are attracted to that. Um, but most people are not attracted to that. They, they a priori think, hey, there's something wrong there if it's called a conspiracy theory. It can't be trusted, and the people espousing it can't be trusted. And if you look at how, how debates take place amongst elites, so for instance, in Congress a few weeks ago, there were uh, hearings on the IRS scandal that's going on here in the U.S., and a congressman got up and he started asking the witness if he believed in Roswell and aliens and if he had ever been abducted by aliens. And the point he was trying to make was he was trying to invoke the idea of conspiracy to discredit the people who were doing the 
uh, interrogation and try to make them look like conspiracy theorists and paint them in a negative light. Yes, it's used as a as a as a bully uh, uh, or as a bludgeon to stifle healthy discourse, which is really unfortunate. That's right. So, and and we, and we see that time and time again, where we'll have people, um, you, you know, when you have people raise questions, um, they get immediately charred with. Um, you know, with this name. And it doesn't have to be, it, it shouldn't necessarily be a negative term. I mean, if you think about conspiracy theories, many of them turn out to be precisely true. So think about Woodward and Bernstein. I mean, those are your typical conspiracy theorists when exactly. they started investigating the Watergate break-in. Exactly. I, I often use that ex- that example, Joseph, and, and I suggest that if those... Uh, two were just sort of on their climbing the ladder now at the Washington Post and, and went to their went to their editor with that story. Uh, their colleagues would laugh them out of the room. That's exactly true, and it actually took them a long time to gather the evidence and really and really get the media behind them to push that story. I mean, if you look at how how Watergate was covered, it was covered a little bit, and then it went dead for a long time. And it took a lot of effort on the part of those reporters to really um, push the story. So, you know, had they not done that and had they been pushed off to the side, I mean, Nixon would have gotten away with, you know, all the all the awful things he was doing. So it was good to have those uh, those investigators there. Joseph, you're an associate professor of political science at the University of Miami, pretty prestigious uh, university. Um, how how is conspiracy? Uh, how do you use that in your classroom? I mean, how do you how do you introduce the topic, and and uh, um, what do you do with with that term in in the course of your teaching? Well, I've been teaching a course on the topic for two years now, and it is a very difficult course to get into. I'll, I'll have 35 students in the class and then a wait list that's, you know, between 35 and 70. Very so telling students, indeed, isn't it? Yeah, so students eat it up. I don't tell students what conspiracy theories to believe in and what ones not to believe in. I tell them that's completely up to them, that, uh, the, you know, they need to sift through the evidence um, and make up their own mind on these things. I, you know, what I teach is is about political behavior. Why do people hold the opinions they have, and why do they act politically the way that they do? And we use conspiracy theories as kind of fodder for answering those uh, those questions. You, you had a ra- rather interesting experiment where uh, how did this work? Now you ask students on the one side of the class to make make up, fabricate a conspiracy theory. Uh, and then the other half of the class had to t- try and debunk that theory. Tell me about that experiment. Yeah, so I ask everybody to, to write up their own conspiracy theory, to completely make it up to, you know, however fantastic they want it to be. And then they trade it with another student, and that student has to debunk it and has to say why it's probably not true. And then they have to, in front of the class, say, you know, here are the reasons why the conspiracy theory isn't true. And the funny thing is, it always happens, is that the student who wrote the conspiracy theory gets upset at the person who's debunking it because he now believes that it's true. And I say, how can it be true? You made it up, and you know you made it up. Interesting. <laughs> so that's the funny, that's the very funny thing in the class. But um, the point isn't to manipulate people's beliefs, but it's to, to better understand why uh, 
you know, beliefs are very important to people and why sometimes it's very difficult to negotiate, um, you know, these sorts of beliefs and opinions. And now, now is, uh, from a psychological point of view, why does that happen, do you suppose? Why do people – is it because they've invested so much of themselves in that fabricated tale uh, that to see it deconstructed, uh, they take a personal affront to that? I think in this instance they do. I mean, in, in you know, with this academic learning exercise. But I think in the broader populace, um, conspiracy theories are very difficult to talk about. You know, people who believe in them don't always want to share uh, their beliefs um, for fear that others are going to attack them. Uh, when people do talk about conspiracy theories, oftentimes the debates can get very heated and, and, and people can't always, uh, you know, can't get along or agree very well. And that's unfortunate because I think people should be able to um, to discuss conspiracy theories just like they discuss other stuff. Um, just the, you know, I... I guess in that sense, conspiracy theories aren't that much different from other types of beliefs. So imagine, you know, if you were you and I had different religions and we're going to, you know, try to figure out which one's correct, we're probably not going to come out, you know, um, negotiating very well or, or getting along. Or if you're a member of one party and I'm a member of the other, you know, we're not going to agree. You know, so conspiracy theories aren't unlike other beliefs in that sense. It's you know, when it's something that you care about, when it has to do with, you know, understanding how the world works, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to compromise on those beliefs very much. So that's where the conversation can sometimes um, get a little bit rancorous. I've always uh, said that uh, uh, to believe that everything or put, let me reverse that, to believe that nothing is a conspiracy is about as ridiculous and about as useful an idea as maintaining that everything is a conspiracy. Would you concur? Oh, absolutely. That's 100% true. So you can think of someone who believes in no conspiracy theories as probably naive. And you can think of somebody who believes in every conspiracy theory as gullible. You know, there's probably a happy medium somewhere in the middle where, I mean, we know some have to be true. I mean, every conspiracy theory has a better than 0% chance of being true. And and I would just say this, there are conspiracies that are probably going on right now, some we might know a little bit about, some we know nothing about. So there are always going to be powerful groups somewhere doing something that isn't very good. So somebody right now is probably conspiring. Who it is and what they're up to, I don't know. But there are so many examples from history that show, you know, uh, examples of, of, of actual conspiracies happening that we know it has to be true, that, that somebody somewhere is doing something. Now, does that mean every conspiracy theory that we hear is true? No, probably not. Um, so if you believe everyone, you, you know, your standards for evidence might be a little bit low. If you believe none, then you're probably naive. We're going to take a break here in a moment, but I just want to at least start the conversation about um, why the United States seems to be such a hotbed uh, for conspiracy theory. And uh, I, I mean I attribute it uh, – I'll get your take on it, but I attribute it to just the, the – how the nation was forged uh, here in Canada, for example. Uh, uh, I'll give you an example. The, the difference between Canadians and Americans, there's a, a comedian slash lawyer up here called Hart Pomerantz, and he had a terrific line 
uh, explaining the difference between Canadians and Americans. He says that Americans, uh, the United States, they shot their parents. We still send money home, obviously talking about, you know, the, the, the queen and, or the king, as the case may be. But uh, it, does that have something to do with the, the – not the fascination so much of conspiracy in the United States, but um, why it has taken such a hold uh, in the culture there? Because of this, I think, this natural – uh, mistrust of authority, whereas here in Canada, you know, we believe in in uh, in good government. Uh, that's you know, right in our constitution: peace, order, and good government. Which you know, there's a there's a, a trust. Some might say an un, an unhealthy trust of authority here. Well, conspiracy theories don't have to necessarily be aimed at government, um, but it may very well be true that some that that, that some countries have more. Um, Fear of powerful groups, government, corporations, and whatnot, than uh, than others. You know, I studied the American case, and I haven't been able yet to do uh, comparative research looking at different countries to find out who's more conspiratorial and who isn't. Um, but if you go all the way back to American history, there seems to be exactly what you say—a you know, a, a fear of of power—and it's written right into the Declaration of Independence. As we start out in our book, I mean, when the United States united, um, you know, we wrote this beautiful Declaration of Independence. The first few paragraphs are just incredible. And then what comes after that is this piling on of conspiratorial charges against the king, most of which really weren't very true. Um, you know, maybe a little bit of truth to them. But the king was not trying to set up a tyranny over the colonies and rule over them with an iron fist. All right. Well, uh, but I, I guess many of those allusions to conspiracy—the very word, conspiracy—was uh, sort of stricken from from the uh, from the document. Is that is that not correct? Well, some of it still remains. I, I mean, it, it doesn't say conspiracy, but it does say that the king wants to rule over the colonies and and, and uh, be a tyrant. But the original version, written by Jefferson, was much longer and it had a lot more charges against the king, which. Uh, uh, the, the, the colonists had to edit out uh, for clarity. All right, Joseph, uh, stay put. We'll uh, reconnoiter on the other side. This is The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay a while. And we are talking about conspiracy theories uh, tonight. Joseph Yuzinski is uh, with us. He is an associate professor of political science at the University of Miami, and his most recent book is American Conspiracy uh, Theories. And we were discussing the, the role of uh, or, or why conspiracy theories uh, have taken hold in, in American culture, maybe the genesis uh, of that. Um, now, the, the term conspiracy theory... Uh, I've read, and, and you can disabuse me if this is, is, is not correct, uh, but according to legend, uh, conspiracy theory was actually a term that was developed by one of the, uh, the alphabet uh, intelligence agencies in the United States after the Kennedy assassination. Uh, and uh, it was supposed to be used again as sort of as a bludgeon to, to, uh, to stifle debate when, everyone was, when anyone was raising questions about the Kennedy assassination and maybe the veracity of the Warren report. Is that true? I don't know if that's true, but I have heard that before. Um, so if you go back in time and you, and you look at news reports, certainly you see that term coming out um, in the 60s, but I've seen it prior to that too. I mean, I can't imagine a better term for it. And I guess, and I guess if we're worried about the term conspiracy theory, it's not so much the words that matter. It's, 
It's the meaning that people attach to it. So if people, you know, think that conspiracy theorists are kooks and weirdos and paranoids, then it doesn't matter what word you use. It matters that people have that perception of them. So we could call, you know, people something else, but it, it's, it's, you know, if the meaning's still there, it doesn't matter. I mean, your show is called The Conspiracy Show, and your show seems to do very well. Right. So it's not that the, it's not that the name is driving people away. It's attracting people. It's just some people like the, you know, those terms, and some people are, you know, see them as terms of derision. Now, you mentioned we mentioned the Kennedy assassination, and we talked about Watergate, uh, and certainly since since nine eleven, uh, uh, you know, there's been a, a heightened uh, sense of uh, that that you know conspiracy theory has sort of gained new traction. And uh, uh, I'm wondering, though, have there been other periods in history? Uh, I mean, on a relative scale, are we more sort of consumed by conspiracies now, or were there other part? Are there other times in America's past, uh, where conspiracy theory was was rampant. Well, we started our study in the in the 1890s, and we went to 2010. And one thing that we wanted to test was how conspiratorial is the country in relative terms over time, because everybody always thinks that right now is the most conspiratorial we've ever been. So if you read the papers now, they say, oh, my God, we're becoming a conspiracy country. And if you read the papers five years ago, they said, oh, my God, we're becoming a conspiracy country. 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago, all the newspapers said, oh, my God, we've become more conspiratorial than ever. And if they were all right, then, you know, we'd be off the charts. Conspiracy theorizing would be all we talk about. But it isn't. You know, there are two periods in history where conspiracy theorizing became, you know, really high elevated levels. Um, but as it stands right now, you know, it's actually come down on average um, over the last hundred years. I mean, those two peak periods are in the 1890s and then in the 1950s. The 1950s was the, um, uh, the second Red Scare. Sure. A red under every bed. Yes. And... And, and the reason for that is that the communists at that time, um, neither party really liked communism. The the uh, the Soviets were gaining new power. China had just fallen. We were entering a new stage of, of uh, bipolar international relations, and um, we were now nuclear. And the Soviets were nuclear. So we were in this new place in the late 40s and early 50s, and it was scary. So you have everybody able to attach um, their fears to one group, and that was the communists. Now, does that mean that those fears were, were not uh, founded on something? No. I mean, there, you know, there were communist groups in the country, and there most certainly were Russian spies here, and people were rightly afraid. I mean, Russia was a new superpower, and, and they were a serious competitor, and we should have been worried about them. Um, the other period in time was the 1890s, and the the group that was gaining the most power then was business. You have huge gains made in manufacturing and technological development during that time, and and money and wealth uh, wound up being concentrated in a very small number of hands. And at that time, business hadn't really become part of the Republican Party. So neither party was like, oh, you know, we're the party of, of big business. 
Um, so both parties were able to get upset with the big corporations and the, uh, you know, the oil magnets and the radio and, and, and the railroad um, people and the um, the, the uh, steel mill owners and. So all those rich people, I mean, they could be targeted by both parties. But then after 1896, um, that no longer happens because McKinley, who became president in 1896, he was a Republican. He brought business into the Republican fold where it stayed um, since that time. So Republicans are much less likely now to be concerned about business um, conspiring against them than, than uh, Democrats are. Is there... One particular uh, is there one political stripe over the other uh, that that tends to to uh, believe in conspiracies more than the other? Democrats and Republicans are about equal, and that shocks both sides because Republicans think the Democrats are a bunch of conspiracy people, and and, and Democrats think the Republicans are a bunch of conspiracy people, and um, the truth is neither of them are. I mean, conspiracy theorizing is pretty equal between the two parties. Um, it's part of the human condition. There's nothing wrong with it. And, you know, we were talking about is it a word of division? It's used as a word of division, but it's, you know, it's a trait that some people have more than others. Everybody has it at least a little bit. Um, and it's, it's not, it's not uh, solely within one party or the other. If there are groups that do it a little bit more than others, it's the third parties and the social movements who tend to use them a lot more. Interesting. Um, we'll, we'll take a time out. When we come back, I wanted to talk to you about whether or not the belief in conspiracy theories uh, can be toxic and, and, and whether there is a danger that it can, that it can undermine our, in, our institutions. Uh, and and d democracy itself. We'll we'll get into that with uh, Joseph Uzinski, who is an associate professor of political science at the University of Miami, and his recent book, his most recent book, American Conspiracy Theories, right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Joseph Uzinski is with us, associate professor of political science, University of Miami, and the author of American Conspiracy Theories, uh, co-author. Uh, now there was a uh, there is a member of the uh, of President Barack Obama's administration, I believe, who was who either was was given the assignment or took it upon him or herself to uh, use social media as a, as a method of, I guess, in their mind, talking people down off the ledge in terms of conspiracy theories and, and using social media to uh, to persuade people to to stop thinking about conspiracy theories. Tell me more about that. Yeah, well, there was a, a he, he's a uh, Harvard law professor, and he studies why people believe the things that they do, and and how people uh, come up with certain beliefs given their social network. And his concern was that uh, conspiracies were were bad for democracy, and that they, um, if they led people to believe wrong information, it would lead them to act poorly in terms of democratic decision making, or. Um, it might lead them to act badly in other ways. So he considered them, you know, somewhat dangerous ideas. And his hope was to figure out a way to dissuade people of their conspiratorial beliefs. And one, one idea that he put forward was to have people go into chat rooms and share authoritative evidence into those conspiracy theory chat rooms that would uh, challenge the people who believed in conspiracy theories. 
Now, this isn't an idea that I would agree with because I, I think what's happening there is that you're asking the government to essentially conspire exactly. <laughs> against people to change what they believe. And I don't think government should be in the business of changing people's beliefs. And, and I think schemes like that could lead to Orwellian abuses of power. Now, I don't think that the person who came up with that idea is, you know, out to injure people or, you know, wanted to hurt anyone. I don't think that was his intent. But I think, you know, he, like me, is grappling with this idea of conspiracy theory and is it good or is it bad and and in what ways and is is there something that should be done about it and if and if so, what? I mean, my personal feeling is, and what I found from my research, is that there there isn't much you can do. I can't. If you believe that Kennedy was killed by a conspiracy, I'm not going to dissuade you from that belief any more than I could dissuade you from being a Catholic or being a Democrat or liking your favorite dish. You know, I'm just not going to convince you of things that you don't want to believe. So we really shouldn't try to do that. I think a better course for us to steer is just um, just to encourage people to try to get along and to share their ideas better and to judge ideas more fairly. So if you see a conspiracy theory um, and you're wondering whether you should believe in it, you should judge it with the same criteria you would judge any other theory. And you should try to um, have standards that are um, that are constant for believing in, in different things. I, I um, have a, a theory, uh, maybe it's a bit of my own uh, my own bias here, but um, I think what's driving a lot of, of this, and, and I think there's a lot of good that come out of uh, you know, a belief in conspiracies. It, 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 there's some critical thinking that's involved. Uh, it's easy to dismiss conspiracy theorists as kooks and say, oh, you're just – you're trying to make a very complex world sim- you know, simple. It's, it's random. You know, people die in car accidents all the time, and if you believe in conspiracies, it's because you, you know, you're, 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 uh, you're being overwhelmed and you're trying to simplify the world. But, I, you know, I, I think it's the exact opposite is true. I mean, to believe in, in, in that there are these nefarious forces out there is not an easy road to hoe. I mean, it's, you, can become, you can become quite cynical and almost despair. What do you, what do you, what do you think? Well, on the first, on your first point, I mean, conspiracy theories. A lot of people say, "Oh, well, they're just a way for people to make sense of a complex world," and they're a way to come up with a simple explanation for something that's very complicated. And in my research, I don't find that. It, I mean, sometimes the conspiracy theories are far more complicated than the, you know, than the accepted stories. So it's not that people are looking for something simple that they can wrap their mind around. It's that they're looking for something that that that. Uh, um, that tries to explain something in a way that makes sense to them. Right, right. So, so that explanation for conspiracy theory should be should be jettisoned. I agree. But, but the other thing is, uh, as you point out, it, it, the, they tend to be very involved and complicated. Then, of course, the debunker or the skeptic throws Occam's razor in your face and says, no, 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 no. The simplest explanation is the most – they want it both ways, don't they? The simplest explanation is the most likely. Uh, but I look at something for like nine uh, eleven as an example. To me, the simplest explanation is whoever is responsible for this had to have some assistance on the inside to pull something this complex off. That to me is Oakham's razor. I mean, that may you know that may be the case. I mean, I don't know if that's true. I don't think we'll you know if somebody was on on the inside. 
it's going to be very difficult to ferret that person out and to find out why they were doing that and what their, you know, what their motives were and how they pulled it off. Um, you know, in terms of democracy, I mean, are, if the question is, are conspiracy theories good or bad? The answer is mixed. I mean, they do do some good. If, you know, the good thing about conspiracy theories is that they challenge powerful groups. You know, sometimes they sound, you know, very accusatory and, and mean, and sometimes they even, you know, sometimes they're linked to violence. But but one thing they do that's really good is that they is that they hold powerful people's feet to the fire. In that in that even if the person who's getting accused of a conspiracy theory isn't actually behind anything, it still sends the signal that hey, there's people watching you. I agree, yes. That hey, there's a concerned citizenry who cares and we have values and we're gonna make sure that those are upheld. Isn't that so supposed that's, to be the role of the of it. Sorry, Joseph. Isn't that supposed to be the the role of the fourth estate, uh, the the journalists, the investigative reporters? And because many of us feel that they've abdicated that responsibility, then it's been left to sort of these independent investigators that uh, sort of live online. Sure, and I can give you some great examples of that. I mean, if you go back to to after the Warren report came out, after the JFK assassination. I mean, those are the days before we had searchable databases and searchable text and, you know, we could download whatever we want. I mean, there was just volumes and volumes of, of text and people couldn't really get through it. And it was, it was a group of housewives across the country who started going through those, those volumes of the Warren Report and indexing them and investigating parts of it that they didn't agree with. And they started sharing their ideas. And it's because of that that the Warren Report actually became indexed and searchable. And it's because of that that a lot of the, the investigations that followed into the Kennedy assassination um, came about. It's because of those efforts of, of just regular people. How do you feel, getting back to 9-11 again, and, and, and those uh, people that, that believe uh, that there was an inside component to it, um, and of course, you know, Clinton administration, the Bush administration, uh, certainly have great difficulty with with these types of questions when they've arisen. Uh, Clinton, I remember in one very memorable moment, shouted down someone who asked him a question about 9-11 and whether there was an inside component, and Clinton said, you know, with these glaring eyes, how dare you? Um, do you think that questioning the government questioning the government and, and, and speculating that there may have been some inside assistance during 9-11, is that dangerous? Is that, is that toxic? Um, I don't know if it's toxic. I mean, people have free speech, and if they want to question authoritative stories, then they should certainly do that. I mean, I think, I think people had a lot of questions about what happened in 9-11, and that's what spurred the 9-11 Commission. And I think there are people who are still unsatisfied with, with the answers that came from there. I mean, if you look at polls in the U.S., you, you know, we usually come in about 20 to 30 percent of people um, believe in some form of truth or theory, um, that, that believe that the official account isn't necessarily wholly true. Um, you know, so it's not, it's not that it's just a, a small handful of people 
who believe in it. There are, you know, there are quite a few who who still have a lot of questions about it. There's been some speculation that that uh, the the tolerance on the part of certain authorities in the United States and elsewhere it's sort of reaching its breaking point when it comes to these types of discussion on the public airwaves. Uh, and that they may find some excuse to sort of clamp down on this type of talk. What, what do you hear? What do you, what's your sense of that? I haven't heard that, and I think it would be really bad to try to censor any idea. Um, I'm a big proponent of free speech, and I want the government to stay out of deciding what's true and what's false. I know that there, there are small... You know, there were always movements to, to you know, say, hey, you know, we want the, the public to get the best information possible and we only want them to get the truth. The problem is somebody's got to decide what that is. And who do you want to decide what truth is for you? I mean, the only person I want to do that for me is me. Exactly. And I think the best way for me to do that is to have as many options out there for me to choose from. And I can decide um, what the best thing is. I don't want the government to decide that. I don't want the government to take people off the air. I don't want the government to tell radio shows and TV shows what they can, you know, what ideas they can and can't discuss. I mean, that's, that would be a conspiracy. I mean, that would be, you know, totalitarianism at its finest. I don't want that. Oh, amen to that. How about for you personally, uh, in, the, in the halls of academia, how, how do your colleagues uh, perceive you and, and, and uh, your, your course on conspiracy and, and your views? Um, I think they, they view me just fine. I don't, uh, I don't run into any problems. I don't run around purporting specific conspiracy theories. I mean, I have my own views on specific ones that I keep to myself. Um, and my colleagues have their own, you know, I'm sure everybody has their own conspiracy theories that they believe in. It wouldn't be a shock. I mean, if you do polls... Um, you find large swaths of the of the public believe in you know one or another. It's you know nothing to be ashamed of. I mean, polls show that you know between sixty and eighty percent of the public believe there was some sort of conspiracy or cover up in the JFK assassination. I mean, that's a lot of people. So so once you start stacking different conspiracy theories together, what you find is that everybody believes in one. So it's it it really shouldn't be a stigma. You know, it, I think we only run into it as a stigma when we think the ones we believe in are true and the ones everyone else believes in are false, so they must be kooks. I think we need to, you know, be a little more understanding and, you know, and allow people to have their own ideas and, you know, be, be able to accept each other. It, it, you know, it, it's ironic that the, the official version of 9-11 is, in fact, a conspiracy theory that it was, you know, bin Laden and his minions who conspired uh, to to conduct this terrorist attack, so I, I just find it interesting that uh, you know s certain groups believe that only you know foreigners, brown-skinned people with with turbans conspire. That uh, we don't do the, that here in the West. <laughs> well, I mean, sure. I mean, there there are people who do, you know who accept the official story here. There's people who don't. I mean, there's people who believe that President Obama faked his birth certificate, and there's people who don't believe that. The interesting thing is about equal numbers between people who believe in truther theories and people who believe in birther theories. So it's about equal, you know, equal numbers. And, and well, the, birthers, the birthers tend to be on the Republican side, and the truthers 
tend mostly to be on the Democratic side here. Well, I, I, I think I applaud what you're doing, uh, Joseph, and uh, I think it's, it's healthy and it's uh, important for us to talk about these things rather than a, a sort of a stifle healthy debate and discourse by throwing words around, uh, uh, oh, you're just a, a nutter or a conspiracy theorist. Uh, Joseph, I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much. Joseph Yusinski, American Conspiracy Theories. My website is richardserrett.com. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. Don't forget to visit followthetruth.tv. Well, thanks for inviting me into your home, as always. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. I always enjoy hearing from you. I, I get a tremendous amount of uh, response from those listening around the world to the podcast. And, of course, those in Ontario, Quebec, and uh, some, I think it's about 28 states, listening in on AM740 Zoomer Radio, and, of course, around the world on zoomerradio.ca. You can listen to the live stream, zoomerradio.ca, like Shane Jones, who just tweeted me this uh, about uh, 10 minutes ago. Uh, Shane listens to the live stream in uh, the UK, when Shane can stay awake. Uh, so thanks for that, Shane. A special, ho to, uh, to, uh, a special hello to all of you listening in via one of our, our growing list of affiliates as well. Stations like WPAM in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, uh, KBUFAM in Wichita, KLFDAM in Minneapolis, KOTA in Rapid City, South Dakota, to name just a few. Uh, also, very quickly, wanted to say thanks to uh, Dr. Douglas James Cottrell, Canada's Edgar Casey, who's a, a remarkable and talented intuitive healer, remote viewer. Uh, Douglas will be on the program next week, incidentally. He has a brand new book uh, out, 30 Years in the Making, he says. It's a collection of, of medical wisdom, natural remedies that Douglas dictated to his son, Douglas Jr., while in a deep meditative state. So in a sense, the book uh, entitled The Complete New Age Health Guide uh, was written by Douglas's soul mind. Uh, anyway, as I say, he'll be with us in studio right off the top. Uh, but Douglas, um, I wanted to say thanks because he's been sending out some healing prayers for a couple of people in my life that are very important to me. And I just wanted Douglas to know that I am eternally grateful for that. You're a good friend, Douglas. Uh, don't forget to register and become a member at richardserrett.com. I know, I know, I've been very negligent in publishing my newsletter, The Dead Drop, uh, but now that uh, the summer has come and gone, I'll get back on the case and start publishing more regularly uh, very soon. Uh, just click on the blue member area log, log in button on the left-hand side of the homepage at richardserrett.com. The blue member, uh, it's called a member area login. And uh, click on that and just follow the instructions. Uh, once again, don't forget to order your passes for my, for my all-day conference, Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit, coming this November the 16th at the Region Theater. Six remarkable speakers. And we've added past life regression therapist Debbie Papadakis. She's going to regress someone on stage during the conference. It could even be you. For more information, visit followthetruth.tv. You can order your passes by calling the box office at 905 721-3399. Use the code word Roswell and receive a 25% uh, discount off the cost of your ticket. Now, uh, very quickly, if you go to followthetruth.tv right now, scroll down. We've posted a question there. Find the question. Then do a little bit of research. won't take you long. Find the answer to that question and uh, call Tim in studio now. We'll take the first two callers with the correct answer 
and uh, you'll get a pair of passes. So a pair of passes to the first two callers. That's two tickets each to follow the truth dot uh, the follow the truth summit. And uh, but you've got to go on followthetruth.tv, find the question, and then find the answer to that question. We'll take the first two correct answers, and you'll win uh, a couple of pa- uh, a couple of pairs of uh, tickets. All right. Uh, earlier this week, I had the pleasure of appearing on Tim Banal's wildly uh, popular uh, podcast, Banal of America. And uh, I work with Tim from time to time when I'm fortunate to host uh, Coast to Coast. Uh, Tim of, Tim is uh, one of Coast's fine webmasters, and he, and he also does this wildly popular uh, podcast. It's now in its eighth year, I believe. And you can listen to the uh, to my interview with Tim on iTunes. But Tim started to sh- to started the show uh, this past week, saying he hadn't produced a podcast in a while uh, because uh, throughout most of the summer he'd much rather be gathered around a campfire with his friends, swapping ghost stories and and, and enjoying a few wobbly pops. Uh, and I'm wondering if Tim had occasion to read my next guest's latest book. It's an anthology of spooky, eerie, and just plain old weird tales about ghosts, cryptids, UFOs, angels, demons, interdimensional contact, and more. And it's just perfect for an evening by the campfire or for scaring your friends. It's called, It Was a Dark and Creepy Night, Real Life Encounters with the Strange, Mysterious, and Downright Terrifying. Joshua P. Warren was born in Asheville, North Carolina. He published his first book, get this, at the age of 14. My word, I was still wetting the bed when I was 14. <laughs> Just kidding. Anyway, uh, since then, Joshua has published more than a dozen books and has appeared on the Travel Channel, History Channel, National Geographic, Discovery, and many more networks. He's a popular public speaker. He was featured at the International UFO Congress, Ghost Fest, and the SCSS Conference on Cryptozoology. He hosts a syndicated paranormal program, Speaking of Strange, airing Saturday nights from the flagship station News Radio 570 WWNC in Asheville, North Carolina. And this is his first visit to the Conspiracy Show. Joshua P. Warren, welcome aboard. How are you? Hey, thank you, Richard. I'm very excited to be with you tonight, so uh, thank you for the invitation. You wrote your first book when you were 14. Just what was that about? Well, you know, in a way, it kind of... um was similar, maybe, to It Was a Dark and Creepy Night, except those were fictional stories. Uh, in the beginning, I couldn't figure out if I wanted to be a fiction or a nonfiction writer, and so I wrote a book of fictional, scary short stories and poems. Uh, it was called Joshua Warren's Gallery of Mystery and Suspense, and more than anything, that helped me by getting me a job as a reporter at the age of 15 for the local newspaper. And so uh, I, at that time, couldn't even legally drive. So I'd have my mom or dad drive me around, and uh, I would often find myself in the backwoods of the mountains of western North Carolina talking to people about spooky old ghost stories, haunted houses, weird creatures that were seen flying around over the barnyard, etc. And uh, I, I wondered if there was any truth to these things. And so to become a better writer, I became a better journalist. And to be a better journalist, I became a better scientist. And so now, um, you know, I, I'm always out there looking for something that sort of uh, pushes the boundaries. And this new book, It Was a Dark and Creepy Night, takes that to an international level. And and uh, you had sort of three um, three rules when you were writing this book. I mean, they had to be 
They had to be terrifying. They had to be sort of documented as truth, and they had to be short, and they are. I mean many of these are, are a half page, a page, a page and a half at the most, uh, and, and as a result, I mean this is just chock full of, of anecdotal evidence. Uh, but did you have – did you have a hard time getting people to open up uh, uh, about this or do you find as I have sort of discovered over the years that people while they don't talk about it over the water cooler at work for fear of being uh, ridiculed by their colleagues they are aching for someone who understands they they want that person to they want a confessor really Oh absolutely in fact it, it honestly seems like the paranormal is becoming more and more normal every single year Hence the popularity of shows like yours and all of the television shows that we see on so many different channels and networks. And uh, I really had no problem collecting these stories. And, you know, I, I realized that at some point, you know, the, the Internet and the interconnectedness of all people in the world would make a project like this appropriate. And, uh, and, and last year was the, the year when that finally sort of solidified. And so when I told people, yes, Send me an experience that has to be true, meaning that at least you're willing to put your legal name to it, and, and you're willing to stand up and say, hey, this is what happened to me. And then, yes, it has to be short. And three, it needs to make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. But it doesn't matter if it's necessarily dealing with what you think of as ghosts or UFOs or cryptids or ESP or angels or demons or synchronicity or my very favorite category, other, uh, you just send me whatever was, was odd at the time you experienced it. And one of the things I love about this collection, and there are about, a, I think, around 150 of these stories from around the world, is that they're not categorized into these sections like, well, this is the ghost chapter, this is the UFO chapter, this is the Bigfoot chapter. Instead, they're kind of just randomly distributed throughout. So what that means is that as you're reading someone's experience, you don't know how that particular tale is going to turn out. You don't know until you get to the end, and therefore it's a much more realistic way of, of reading these tales because when somebody experiences the paranormal, and goodness knows I have on a number of occasions in my life, you don't generally know it's happening to you while it's happening. It's kind of confusing, and then it's only when it's over that you're able to look back in retrospect and say, whoa, you know, what just occurred here? And that's when the categorization begins. And so uh, this book, I, I think, is rather unique in the fact that uh, as you're reading it, you don't know what direction you're going through and uh, or what, what direction you're going into, and therefore uh, it really does feel more like you're having the experience as you're putting yourself in that person's shoes. Joshua P. Warren is with us in his brand new anthology. Anthology is entitled, It Was a Dark and Creepy Night, Real-Life Encounters with the Strange, Mysterious, and Downright Terrifying. You're not just a, a chronicler, uh, Joshua, and, and, a, and a writer, and a, and a darn good one at that, but you're, you also take a kind of a, a scientific approach. You're a researcher in this field, and I'm wondering whether you've uh, sort of arrived at any conclusion about this vast and varied uh, uh, field of, of, of uh, the paranormal as to whether there may be underlying all of it some common denominator. I've had uh, this conversation with, uh, with Rosemary Ellen Guiley uh, from time to time and um, she's sort of working 
you know, to, to arrive at some sort of a conclusion. What do you think? Is there a common denominator, something that might explain many or all of these these various phenomena? Well, you know, that's a great question, and, and absolutely, I do believe that in many cases, there is a common denominator. And, and in fact, one of the reasons that I thought so deeply about this was because I, I wrote a book a few years ago called uh, The Secret Wisdom of Kukul Khan. And in this book, I was searching to use one kind of general catch-all term that I could use when referring to these beings, ghosts, aliens, mothmen, cryptids, and I couldn't really find a good one that existed. And so in order to to create a term that would make my uh, my wording flow a bit more smoothly, I thought, well, what is, you know, just one kind of, you know, blanket connection here? And uh, it, it reminded me very much of the quote by Charles Fort that you can measure a circle beginning anywhere. And so it seems like all these things do have a connection. And the more I thought about it, the more I felt an appropriate term was paratemporals for these beings. Para meaning beyond temporal meaning time. And I say that because if you look at some of the most outstanding examples of the, the so-called paranormal, time appears to play a crucial role when you dig deeply. For example, with ghosts, obviously people often say they are looking back in time or they're seeing a person the way he or she appeared in the past, even though that person may be dead now. So that's an easy one. Joshua, I'm gonna, sorry, I'm going to jump in here and just uh, uh, pardon the interruption. We'll take a time out. We'll come back and we'll drill down a little further on uh, paratemporal uh, phenomena with Joshua P. Warren. It was a dark and creepy night right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Joshua P. Warren is with us, a native of Asheville, North Carolina. Hey, uh, uh, another native from Asheville, Micah Hanks. Uh, uh, also sort of in the same uh, same field. What is it about Asheville uh, that uh, uh, produces not only such fine writers, but but people of a sort of a paranormal bent? Is it something in the water, Joshua? <laughs> well, you know, as a matter of fact, uh, not only have Micah and I worked together on a variety of uh, research projects over the years, but we discovered that we're actually cousins. So uh, maybe the genetics has something to do with the interest, but you know, um, Asheville sits in the heart of the oldest mountains in North America. And uh, you obviously have uh, many of these uh, sort of amazing stories being preserved uh, and passed along in the traditional sense. But also, um, one thing I find noteworthy from an investigator's point of view is that you find some of the purest quartz crystal in the world around Asheville. And quartz has a very interesting relationship with electricity. If you apply stress to quartz, it produces electricity. And if you apply electricity to quartz, it resonates. And um, therefore, you get a variety of uh, odd electromagnetic anomalies when quartz is present. And, of course, you hear that also related to ghosts and paranormal phenomena. So it could be the whole region is kind of like a big power supply for the otherworldly. Oh, that's fascinating. I had not made that connection before. Uh, you mentioned that uh, of all sort of the categories of the paranormal, you, you know, whether we're talking UFOs, shadow people, ghosts, uh, uh, cryptids, your favorite, uh, your favorite category is other. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe explain what you mean by that and then maybe give us an example of uh, your, your favorite story in the book, the anthology that's in the other category. Yeah. You know, the, the first one that pops 
to mind is a story from a lady who had a, a weird experience in Colorado in 2011. She went to Walmart to purchase a digital camera, went into the electronics department, picked her camera out, purchased it, went home, uh, unpackaged it from the fresh new wrapping, put the new batteries inside, turned it on, and lo and behold, there was a photograph already on the camera of her from that same day wearing the same outfit. Oh, my. Wow. <laughs> now, uh, when, you, when you hear these stories, uh, what sort of uh, journalistic uh, tools do you employ to sort of you know, test the veracity of that story? For example, did she produce the photograph? Well, you know, in this particular case, we didn't include photographs in the book, so I have not seen that photograph. And, you know, at the beginning of the show, you were pointing out the sort of connection between this particular book and sitting around a campfire sharing stories. So that was the approach and the attitude that I took, that if somebody was, was willing to say, look, this is a true story, I want to share it, and, and it seemed entertaining and interesting enough, I put it in the book. But... I can't say that any of these stories are absolutely true unless I know the person who experienced it. Now, of course, that's unusual for me. Uh, usually I'm out there actively trying to validate things, verify things. In fact, just recently it appeared that a fantastic photograph of a full-bodied apparition was captured in downtown Asheville, and uh, I put the crack team to work, and we solve the mystery. It was actually a, a, a ghost tour guide who had accidentally popped into a photograph, and, uh, and the photograph was lit in just a way to make it look like a ghost. So I'm always happy to be the first person to point out if, if there's a more uh, logical or, or practical explanation rather than jumping to a paranormal conclusion. But for this book, we loosened up those rules. Sure, sure. But one of the differences between uh, the stories in this book, and as you say, there's, what, about 150 of them, uh, as opposed yeah. to the ones that uh, get swapped around the campfire and while people are enjoying a few wobbly pops, is that, uh, you know, eventually the ones that you're going to hear around the campfires are going to start to sound familiar because they are, you know, they are sort of those legendary bits of folklore that have been passed down in the oral tradition around campfires for, you know, maybe a hundred years or more. But these are, in your book, in It Was a Dark and Creepy Night, they're all original. I mean, I've not, there are no antecedents to these that I can tell. I've, not, I've never heard of any of these before, which tends to suggest, I mean, these are unique experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Every year I analyze, I would say, and this, I know this sounds unbelievable, but usually close to a thousand supposedly uh, paranormal images. And I travel around the world speaking at conferences, uh, investigating, you know, out, outstanding sites, and, and I hear a lot of stories. And as soon as some new app comes out that allows you to insert a pre-manufactured full-bodied apparition in your photograph on your cell phone, you know, I start seeing those images, and so I, I kind of stay on top of what, uh, what is common, and uh, that's one of the things I kept in mind as I was looking through the deluge of stories that came in from around the world. The ones that I picked, they definitely had, uh, dare I call it, a ring of truth, meaning that in many cases, the stories don't fit together into a nice 
neat little package with a bow around it that, you know, usually you hear these scary ghost stories and such, and uh, each element is so uh, nicely formed that the whole story kind of collapses like a house of cards. But in reality, often when someone has a paranormal experience, something weird happens, and then boom, it's over. And they are not sure what happened, and there is no closure. And you get that sense often when you're reading through these stories that in some cases, uh, in fact, I would say in, in most of these stories, really, uh, there's a sense that we don't know exactly what just happened to this person. And it's that kind of um, moment where this mystery is still ringing uh, in the air that uh, makes us feel we're actually glimpsing into something we truly don't understand. Well, we're, 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 we're not sitting around a campfire tonight, although I've always looked at, at radio as sort of the electronic bonfire or an electronic campfire. So while we're, we're gathered around, uh, could you share maybe one of your, your favorite uh, ghost stories from the anthology? Yeah, this is one that I found um, outstanding because it actually does kind of neatly fit together. I mean, this is the kind of story that you actually could tell around a campfire, and it would um, perfectly uh, fit the bill. Uh, this story comes to us from 1997, Minnesota. Uh, a young couple moved into a house in a rather charming little neighborhood, and after they had lived there for about, uh, oh, three days, they woke up one morning, went into the bathroom, and discovered that somehow the butcher knife from the kitchen had ended up in the bathtub. Um, they had not been using the butcher knife, so this was a very weird thing. Why would it be in there to begin with? And over the next three years, this continued to happen. From time to time, the butcher knife would be in the bathtub. So uh, after three years, they threw a party and invited uh, most of their neighbors over. And at some point, this story came up, and that's when some of her neighbors sort of uh, rolled their eyes and said, well, you do know, don't you, that in the 1960s, the lady who owned this house committed suicide in the bathtub with a butcher knife. There you go. Oh, my. Yeah, that's uh, that's not something you want to hear. Uh, what's The other impressive uh, thing is, as you say, these people attach uh, their names uh, to it. So it's it's sort of, uh, you know, it's been cemented now. Uh, their name is attached to this story, and it's a permanent record that will live uh, for eternity. Uh, but not only do they attach their name, also their occupation. And, and there are um, – there's, for example, an employee of the uh, um, Department of Homeland Security with a, with a story in here. There's a police officer uh, from uh, Pencil Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, a border patrol uh, agent, uh, uh, mechanical engineers, uh, you name it. I mean it's a very broad spectrum of, of the population and uh, – uh, a security guard. They often, you know, obviously, uh, they see a lot of uh, a lot of strange things working late night hours. Uh, are you more impressed, or uh, does it matter when you hear a story like this from, um, let's say, I, um, I don't know, someone who has letters behind their name, uh, a, a PhD, or a, a, a commercial airline pilot who, who sees a UFO, rather than, let's say. Um, a member of the great unwashed like myself? 
Uh, well, generally, I do find that it, it is more impressive, especially when you're talking about somebody like a police officer, uh, somebody who is trained as, as much as anybody can be in uh, how to you know, properly uh, discern uh, fact from fiction and record it. Um, and, of course, obviously sometimes the person will have expertise in an area that isn't related to his or her experience. So that is to say you might find somebody who um, is a pilot, but, uh, and, and that might give him um, uh, better credentials analyzing a UFO experience, but it doesn't help him much when it comes to seeing a Bigfoot in his backyard. So uh, it, you do have to consider that. But generally speaking, yeah, you know, it makes you think that this is a person who uh, maybe at least has a, a higher level of concentration uh, to, to achieve those things. And, uh, in fact, you know, the, the story the police lady from Philadelphia sent in, I believe, was one of my favorites as well. So uh, I'm happy to share that with you at some point if you'd like. Yeah, let's, let's do that now before we go into a break, please. Okay. Uh, police officer, she had been working on the force many, many years, a single mother, would usually get home all around 11.30 p.m. at night. And so uh, she arrives home about 11.30. She walked past her teenage son's bedroom, and right as she walked past, she heard his cell phone ring. And so she paused to see if he was going to wake up and answer it, but he didn't. So she went on to her room and went to sleep. So the next morning, she was having breakfast, and he came down. And he said, Mom, did you call my cell phone last night? And she said, no, why? And uh, he said, yeah, you know, my cell phone rang. And she goes, well, I remember your cell phone ringing. And uh, he said, yeah, but it said that it came from inside the house. And, of course, they only had two landlines in the house, and there's no one who can explain who was in her house that night and who made that call. Oh, it wasn't her. <laughs> boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, gotta, we've got a few minutes here. I've got to get you to tell me about the, uh, uh, the strange woman who said she remembered Lincoln's funeral and then vanished. Yeah, absolutely. That is actually the first story in the book, and uh, I think it's just because it really sets the atmosphere. Uh, this story comes to us from um, Denver, Colorado, 1996. Jennifer Donnelly, a security officer, said that she and her sister would often play on a little trail uh, at the edge of the woods behind their parents' apartment complex. And uh, one day, uh, as they were looking around uh, the woods, they noticed this odd, sort of um, eerie old lady who appeared to be very kind of out of place startled her at first when the old lady appeared, and she looked at them with a big, big friendly smile and said, oh, these lilacs are just lovely, aren't they? They're my favorite flower. They smell so good. And she just kept talking to the girls about the lilacs. And at one point she said, I can remember them at Lincoln's funeral, the smell of them, so strong. It was sad, but they still remain my favorite. And the girl said, Lincoln, President Lincoln? And she said, yes. Oh, the grand funeral I'm sure you remember it. And the girl said, well, no, that's been a long time ago. And the woman just seemed to blow them off. And then shortly thereafter, she was gone. She vanished. They never saw that woman again. But uh, Jennifer Donnelly did research and found out that when Abraham Lincoln died and they were really touring his corpse around, it was known as the funeral of flowers because soldiers were throwing, of all things, lilacs on the street in front of his carriage. The blooms were crushed. 
releasing that scent, and it was one of the most memorable things for those who actually were there. And she said even writing this story down had her skin prickling again after all those years. Wow, that is a remarkable story. Uh, it was a dark and creepy night, and it's full of uh, such stories. Joshua P. Warren is my guest. Uh, last night, uh, the mighty Aphrodite and I were watching. We have a, uh, a DVD collection of, uh, of uh, The Night Stalker, uh, Darren McGavin. Uh, played Carl Kolchak, of course. I don't know if you remember that series going back. Uh, it wasn't uh, the the pilot was uh, very scary. It was about a vampire. The series that lasted, I think, one season back in the mid seventies, not so great. But I was watching an episode last night. It's called The Sentry uh, about this um, a reptilian creature uh, that uh, inhabits uh, subterranean Chicago. And it uh, mauls a couple of people to death. And then I'm reading, lo and behold, uh, a story in your book, Joshua, uh, from a retired software architect from Wichita Falls back in uh, 1962. Do you remember the story, First Grade Tulpas, about the bipedal bipedal reptilian monster? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Or I I don't want to put you on the spot because I know you've got 150 stories in here. Exactly. Yeah, you know, the odd thing is I don't have all the stories memorized, but uh, in that particular one, I, I honestly, I don't remember all the details, but I found it fascinating that this monstrous reptilian creature, essentially, was haunting this kid's uh, property. And uh, the, the idea of a tulpa is really fascinating to me because it implies that sometimes we can create our own monsters in a very literal way that we are able to actually think about some type of a being or a creature and externalize it, and it will actually take on some form or some shape that we create. And, uh, of course, that's uh, what may have happened in this particular kid's case, and I think it's wonderful that we are able to look not only at creatures that may exist as normal biological organisms, but creatures that may exist as, well, thought forms as well. Uh, well, that's a, a fascinating idea that's even worth uh, exploring further um, because there are certain uh, creatures, uh, Bigfoot, for example, these uh, mystery jungle cats in, in the UK where people are seeing black panthers and tigers uh, in uh, you know, a suburb of London, England, for crying out loud, uh, leads one to, to wonder whether they may in fact be a manifestation of the mind and they flit in and out of our dimension. Back with more of my conversation with Joshua P. Warren. It was a dark and creepy night. Real life encounters with the strange, mysterious, and downright terrifying. Joshua P. Warren is with us, and uh, his latest, it's an anthology and a good one, just jam-packed uh, with ghost stories. You know, the weather, we're heading into uh, to autumn, but there's still some great campfire weather ahead of us, so grab a copy, and uh, I mean, you could be up all night. Uh, entertaining your friends and scaring your friends with It Was a Dark and Creepy Night, real-life encounters with the strange, mysterious, and downright terrifying. Uh, do you have a favorite? I mean, you mentioned uh, sort of the other category, uh, but do you have a, a, a favorite sort of within the, uh, the cryptozoology field or cryptid um, uh, encounters? Yeah, I certainly do. And, and by the way, uh, I've actually been told that I should warn people not to read this book late at night, because I have already started getting (laughs) reports from people saying, I've been having terrible dreams ever since I started reading this book before I go to bed, but hey, it just depends on, you know, your cup of tea, I suppose. But uh, yes, Richard, when it comes to um, cryptids, uh, obviously it's 
uh, easy to find stories these days about Bigfoot or some type of a maybe a Loch Ness monster, but this is a little bit different. This is a story from Lawrence Jagarski, uh, Woodridge, Illinois, 1995. I'm holding it in front of me. He says, I walked out onto the balcony of my apartment to smoke. It was approximately 12.30 a.m., and I heard a loud, low, whistling sound as if a big wind was picking up. It was then that I saw what I can only describe as a pterodactyl. He goes on to say this huge thing flew right past his balcony, not five or six feet from him. He said it was so close I could see its big black eye focus on me. Uh, he said it was gray, had no feathers, just small scales. Its head and neck were not stretched out looking down like you see in science books and museums. Instead, he said it held its head like a pelican with its neck bent in such a way that the base of its skull rested on its backbone. He said it didn't flap its wings. It simply glided, and moments later it was gone. This guy says, you know, I've looked through every book on birds and normal creatures, and the only thing that looks like this is a pterodactyl. And one reason I find that interesting is um, probably about 10 years ago, I investigated a haunted farm in Lancaster, South Carolina, owned by a woman named Lynn Jackson. And this farm was a hot spot for all kinds of weird paranormal phenomena. You could almost call it some type of a portal or, or a warp. And one day, her son uh, went out to feed some animals, and he came running in the house screaming, Mama, there's a monster in the yard, in the barn. And so... Uh, she went outside and did not see anything, but she believed her son, and she began carrying a camera with her, and on a couple of occasions, she ended up seeing this monster, and she told me the same kind of thing that this man said. She said it looked like a pterodactyl, a big winged flying creature, uh, obviously horrifying to see in person, and she took two pictures of this, which, to my knowledge, are absolutely one of a kind. Uh, what's weird in these photos is not only can you certainly see that pterodactyl batwing-type form, but even though to her naked eye the creature looked just as solid and corporeal as you or I might, she said, uh, you know, despite this, if you look at the photographs, you will see the being looks kind of translucent and ghostly. As a matter of fact, I have those posted on my website, uh, joshuapwarren.com. If you scroll down, there's a section that says World's Wildest Ghost Photos, and you can click through and see some of my favorites. And I have photos of these pterodactyls. And to me, when you see a creature that weird, and it looks one way to the naked eye, but it comes out looking kind of ethereal on camera, this is an earmark of some kind of an interdimensional being, not necessarily some... Uh, leftover from eons ago that has managed to managed to survive, but one of these creatures that might sort of pop in and out of our different dimensions, because when you study life, there is nothing scientifically to suggest life must exist exclusively at this frequency that you and I call physical. That's an excellent point, uh, which brings us back to, to Bigfoot because, um, you know, one of the explanations on the surface that may sound, you know, pretty out there is that these creatures 
are, are also in some way interdimensional. Uh, I remember um, uh, speaking with a researcher talking about tracking one of these uh, creatures in in Wisconsin and uh, followed the the the, uh, the footprints into the woods and in the snow and in the middle of the woods these footprints just came to a stop and no no creature like so where did this thing go you know it didn't climb a tree uh did it did it flit out of our dimension and into another uh and then we have you know all the the photographic and video evidence of these of these uh hairy bipedal creatures they're 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 fuzzy of course the comedian Mitch Hedberg suggested maybe Bigfoot is fuzzy uh, and out of focus. But um, um, talk to me a little bit more about about the, the the possibility that many of these cryptids, like Bigfoot, might in fact be interdimensional. Absolutely, I, I believe that there is a, a better chance of that than there is that we have some large undiscovered primate or, or something similar that's running around North America, because, I mean, every year there are quote-unquote Bigfoot sightings in every single state in the United States, and I'm sure they're spread all over Canada, and yet we don't have any real tangible evidence. And, And what I mean by that is, yes, you can argue whether any evidence has been found, but if if there's a population big enough to support these sightings, there should be a lot more hair. There should be many more droppings. There should be uh, an enormous uh, sort of impact on the ecology that we just can't find. And we've gotten very, very good as humans at investigating and documenting normal biological life. We, on the other hand, are just in the infancy of understanding life forms that may sort of slip in and out. Uh, meaning that there may be creatures that are sort of teetering on the boundary of the physical and the non-physical. And the example you gave is a perfect example where you have somebody chasing uh, a Bigfoot and then suddenly the footprints end in mid-pathway as if this thing has been spirited away. You know, earlier in the show you asked me what I thought the common denominator might be, and I said time. Well, if you apply that to cryptids, something like Bigfoot has obviously shifted his point in space when that happens. And we know that space and time are connected, so there's the element of time. Uh, Same thing with UFOs. You have a guy driving down the road in his truck. He sees a UFO. Suddenly his truck stops. And yet when the UFO flies away, the truck just starts working again. He doesn't have to turn the ignition. It's as if time itself had stopped and paused the workings of the truck even though sometimes it doesn't stop our conscious awareness because our brains are like little time machines. Exactly. Listen, uh, time, unfortunately, marches on. We'll take a quick time out, come back with Joshua, Joshua P. Warren. It was a dark and creepy night. Stay with us. Uh, welcome back. Joshua P. Warren stays with us uh, for a few moments yet. Uh, I mentioned earlier about uh, the, uh, the question uh, on followthetruth.tv. If you can find the question on there, scroll down, find the question, and then find the answer to that question. I neglected to give you the, uh, the studio number uh, to call Tim with the correct answer. And uh, we just heard the big announcer guy here at the station give those numbers out. Let me do it one more time quickly, and then we'll get back to Joshua. So, again, followthetruth.tv. Find the question on that website. Then just do a little uh, a little research. Won't take you long. Get the answer to that question. Uh, be one of the first two callers to call Tim, 
with the answer and we'll give you a, a pair of uh, ducats to uh, follow the truth uh, the Follow the Truth Summit in November in Oshawa, hosted by yours truly. So call Tim at 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. Again, we'll take the first two callers with the correct answer to the question found at followthetruth.tv. Back to uh, Joshua P. Warren. It was a dark and creepy night. Uh, Joshua, what was your entree into this whole field of, of the paranormal? Did you have a personal experience? Well, yeah. I, in fact, when I was uh, a teenager, uh, you know, and of course you mentioned that I published my first book around the age of 14, um, I was greatly influenced by something that actually happened to my family before I was even born. And that was originally what got me interested. And then, of course, as time passed and I started investigating on my own, then I eventually had my own experiences. But um, the story that impacted my family so much occurred during the Great Depression. Uh, my grandmother was named Virginia Brigman, and uh, she lived uh, with her family uh, in a big farmhouse out in the countryside in a place called Barnardsville, North Carolina. And uh, during the Depression era, she herself was rather young. I'm thinking about 13. And at that time, the family, though, was still kind of well off, and they gave her a pretty nice birthday present. She got a camera. And one day, her father named Jack and her older brother, who was in his early 20s, named Claude, came back from a small game hunting trip in the mountains, and she photographed them. It's a great picture of these kind of two old rugged mountaineers holding their rabbits and squirrels. And yet when the photo developed, her older brother Claude did not have a head. Um, you could actually see the vegetation behind him. Um, they knew that was weird, but they didn't understand enough about how photography worked to realize just how weird it was. I'll say. Well, one, and then one month later, um, Claude was having lunch on his porch. Uh, actually, he was on the porch reading a magazine, waiting for his lunch, and conversing with his father through uh, an open window. And uh, all of a sudden, Jack, the father, said something to Claude, and Claude didn't answer. And Jack went outside, and here was the magazine. But no Claude. And uh, my great-uncle Claude was never seen or heard from again. He had vanished in mid-sentence, almost in the blink of an eye. And that was a big tragedy that deeply affected my family. And it, it fired my imagination, uh, wondering if there are other realms and dimensions that people can simply be spirited away into. Oh, my. That is an incredible mystery. Uh, and, and was yeah. that disappearance covered in, in, in the media at the time? I mean, was there, was there a large-scale search? Was there speculation as about, uh, about what may have happened? Yes. As a matter of fact, as an adult, I not only went back and interviewed many of the elderly people in the community who told me the exact same version of events, but I also hired a uh, professional historian who is just a, a, almost a forensic bloodhound, and he went back and he documented everything about the case, including um, census records and employment records and everything related to my great-uncle's life, uh, all the way up until that day when it just ended. It just stopped. The paper trail died right there. And, um, yeah, there was lots of speculations. There were some people who said, well, he obviously was murdered because people don't just vanish, but there was never any evidence of that or any motivation for it. 
And, um, you know, this was something that was so damaging to my family because they never had any closure. And, and, and having that kind of an experience occur within your family allows you to see the paranormal with a much more uh, realistic sort of uh, uh, perspective. And uh, it, it sort of uh, opened my mind to uh, the possibility that you know, sometimes these stories you hear are more than just stories, and, uh, and that mystery still lingers uh, to this day. That's a, that's a remarkable story. Uh, and how could you not be? How could, how could your course in life not be altered uh, with an experience like that? Uh, do you find that, that uh, in, in, in some cases, many cases, uh, of people that have had a profound paranormal encounter um, are damaged in some way? Um, I don't know if it's, I would say, damaged. It depends on how it affects them. Um, I think it can be certainly damaging if it completely shatters their worldview in a very abrupt, uh, jarring way. Uh, Some people can literally have what they call a psychotic break from reality because of a paranormal experience. Uh, In fact, I have a museum in Asheville, North Carolina, called the Asheville Mystery Museum. And it's in the basement of the Asheville Masonic Temple, which is a big, uh, glorious four-story building with a spooky attic. What a great location. What a great location. (laughs) Yeah, it's perfect. And in the attic, we have what's called a psychomantium set up. And the psychomantium is a room that is designed to facilitate some contact with the dead. And uh, I remember when I first started learning how to build these psychomantiums, I went to the Ryan Research Center uh, in North Carolina, which, of course, is famous for pioneering ESP. And they had been doing a lot of psychomantium research. And they warned me. They said, you know, we've seen people who don't believe in anything go into these rooms and have an experience with a full-bodied spirit. And after that, they are... They're gone. You know, mentally, they're not the same person anymore, and they were very adamant about you know, being careful. So, uh, you know, I, I, I suppose it can happen, uh, especially when you talk to people who believe that something really evil and demonic is, is attacking them. We have a story about that kind of thing in, in the book. Uh, but I think for the most part today, um, when there's so much support available for people to share stories and to try to place their experiences into context through the Internet, um, it's usually just something that has a positive effect because it opens people's minds and uh, it helps them to, to become a more educated person, realizing how, how small we are and how vast, how unimaginably gigantic this mysterious universe really is. Uh, despite the fact, uh, Joshua, that I, uh, I I sort of make a living, uh, sort of, in quotations, uh, uh, you know, talking about these things, uh, uh, I've never had... A paranormal experience in the sense I've never seen a ghost. I have had an experience uh, seeing what may have been my own astral body. Uh, I've told that story a number of times uh, on the air, uh, but not a ghost per se. I've never seen a UFO. And part of me, um, cr- you know, craves that experience. I want to have that experience because I, I think it's important, you know, if I'm going to talk about it and I, uh, you know, I'm fully going to understand what people are talking about and what they feel. That I that I have that shared experience. Um, do you uh, do you have you have you seen a ghost? Do, do you do you want to see a ghost? 
<laughs> well, you know, it took me six years of full-time investigation of haunted places before I ever saw a ghost. And, in fact, I have reached the point where I believe that maybe some people can see ghosts, maybe their eyes are different or their brains work differently, and that some people cannot see ghosts. And, and I was one of those people. I just had accepted that I couldn't see ghosts, and I was fine with that because I, I believe that people like you are just as valuable because you can, you can relate to the experiences from another perspective, from the perspective of having an open mind and listening to what people have to say. You switch to a whole different world when you see one, though. And at that point, you become, well, just another person with a great story. But in my case, I was contacted by a young woman, a college student, who had just moved into a house and saw this apparition. At first, she called 911 because she thought a physical intruder had broken into her home. And often this thing was appearing as sort of a dark mist. And uh, one night it appeared in her bedroom. And she was like, that's it. I'm moving out of this house if something can't be done. And she contacted me. Uh, on my second investigation, I was in her attic with another researcher. And he said, Josh, look. And I turned. And right between us was this big, blue-gray, misty form swirling in the air. And not only was I able to reach out and touch it, but I also was able to get a photograph of it. And so we both saw the same thing. It was something I was able to photograph. It felt cold in the middle, had this electrostatic component that kind of made the hair stand up on my knuckles. I can't say to you that that was the spirit of a dead person, but given the context of the situation, it definitely qualified as a ghost. And I was so uh, perplexed and yet excited that I thought, well, now that I know this stuff is real, I'm even more inspired to see something. But then a few more years went by before I saw anything. So it happens very, very rarely, but when it does, it changes your life. I'll bet. I'll bet. Um, just in a couple minutes uh, that remain, do uh, you have a favorite UFO story from It Was a Dark and Creepy Night? I do. Uh, there was a story sent to me by a man named Don Warwick from uh, Maricopa County, Arizona, 1982. He was out hunting one day at Table Mesa, and as the day got late uh, and the sun was uh, becoming a, a bit dim, he decided to head back, and as he's walking on a pathway up ahead, he saw a light with some figures moving around it, and he lifted up his rifle, and through the scope, he saw that these figures were, I'm talking typical gray aliens with the big oval heads, the large eyes, and through his scope, he looks at one of these, and it looks right back at him. A chill ran down his spine. He turned around and went running, and at that point, the creatures apparently scrambled onto the craft. The craft flew over top of him as he tripped over a cactus and injured himself. So here he is lying there. The UFOs hovering over top of him, and then it just shoots away into the sky. And I found that story amazing because it's the only story I've ever come across about a guy who literally had an alien being in the scope of his rifle, and if he'd squeezed that trigger, we may have had a dead body on our hands. Wow. Can you imagine? Uh, I mean, <laughs> that could be um, – that would just change everything if we had a body an alien body that would change everything we know. We'd have to write every, rewrite every textbook, rethink uh, 
just mind-blowing, mind-blowing. Well, Joshua, uh, congratulations on It Was a Dark and Creepy Night. Uh, Leave us with a website. Uh, Yes, just go to my name, JoshuaPWarren.com. There is no period after the P. If you go to JoshuaPWarren.com, you'll find all kinds of amazing videos and spooky photos, and you can click a link to the news section to uh, find a link to It Was a Dark and Creepy Night. I really enjoyed our conversation. I can't believe I've been doing this for so long, and you and you and I have never connected. But uh, we won't leave it uh, so long next time. We'll have you back on soon. Hey, thank you, Richard. It's been a great pleasure. Likewise, Joshua P. Warren. My thanks to Tim Spreen for technical production. Next week, brand new show. Douglas James Cottrell, Canada's Edgar Casey, with his brand new book, The Complete New Age Health Guide. Plus, our dear friend Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Hey, congratulations to David Sloma. He won a pair of tickets to Follow the Truth by answering the question at followthetruth.tv. We'll offer up another pair next week. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.